Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of thecomicscomic.com, found wherever you can type the comics comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people with dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Today's guest is Mark Marin. Mark and I go back to the summer of 2001 when I interviewed him during the tour for his one-man show, The Jerusalem Syndrome. A lot has happened personally and professionally for both me and Mark since then. I remember visiting his garage to witness recording one of his early episodes of his podcast, WTF, with Mark Marin. When I caught up with him in the lobby of the Bowery Hotel, he was promoting the third season of his IFC series, Marin, and starting work on a new TV project for Vice. He since has welcomed President Barack Obama in his garage for a WTF podcast interview. He didn't tell me that was in the offing when we chatted. But we're all good, all the same. You might be able to figure that out by listening to our very meta conversation. So let's get to it. So Mark, when was the last time you were able to take any sort of a break from technology, from Twitter, Facebook, your phone, all that stuff? I haven't done it with any real success in a long time. I, mean, I think I tried to do it a couple of years ago when I went to uh, Hawaii, but I don't know. Like, I think it was more of like, I'm only going to check once a day. But I don't know that I've made a concerted effort to get out of any of it. It feels, it feels as though technology has helped so many comedians. Yeah. And yet it also burdens. We get compulsive about it, you know. Like Twitter's, I, I don't do Facebook at all, really. I check in occasionally. But Twitter, like on a good day mixture of, you know, like, hey, I'm doing this thing, or, hey, I need some attention, or, uh, hey, fuck that guy, or whatever, but it gets, it's very conducive to compulsive behavior, because you get a sort of dopamine rush from, from, uh, you know, joke being retweeted, or from a thought being retweeted, or from engaging in a battle, it goes all different ways, like, it's very (laughs) drug-like. And well, also, the technology is also what kind of helped fuel your success over the last few years the ability to to make things well yeah in your I, mean, garage. I, I mean I yeah I mean podcasting is a new thing and I guess it can be under the umbrella of technology what are we in the kitchen <laughs> um, it's my new theme music Jesus Christ you, we, we are right here you want to move but uh but I think that um yeah, podcasting is obviously something that wasn't around, that technology wasn't around. So on that level, it certainly changed my life entirely, yeah. When you were a kid, what did you think you wanted to be? Did you have traditional... I think from an early age, I knew I wanted to be in entertainment. I think I knew I wanted to be a comic. I didn't know how I would go about that. and But that was a childhood dream. But then as I got older, you know, in college, I... You know, I wrote poetry, I directed plays, I tried acting, I tried journalism. Uh, you, you know, so I played photography I was very into for years. But part, you know, being a comic was always sort of there. I don't think I knew how to go about doing that. But, uh, but I figured that out. How early was that that you figured that out? How to do comedy? No, that you wanted to be a I had comedian. a tremendous amount of respect for comedians. I liked them. I compulsively watched comedians on TV. And, uh, you know, in the first season of SNL, you know, when I was 13 mm-hmm. or something, was very, 
meaningful to me. Woody Allen was always very meaningful to me, listening to comedy records. I don't know that I knew that it was possible to do it or how to do it, but I knew that I loved it and who, that I wanted to do it. Who was your gateway drug comedian who kind of opened that up as a possibility for you? The possibility of actually doing it? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, like, you know, when I was in college, I, you know, I was down in New York and we went to the comic strip and I saw Paul Reiser sitting in a... I can't fucking take this. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, they're like, hold on. I don't know where that's coming from. It's a fucking disaster. Why don't we sit right here? Okay. I don't want to interrupt people, so... Why don't we sit right here? I think it'll be fine. That, yeah. that thing's got pretty good pickup. Yeah. Um, but I, I remember, you know, I sat down with, uh, you're right. I sat down with um, Paul Reiser. Now I'm concerned about your levels. Yeah, it looks good. <laughs> I mean, I sat down with Paul Reiser. You know, I just said, kind of talked to you. I said, you know, what do I, how do I do comedy? And he, was, he said, uh, you just got to do it. I'm like, I don't, okay. <laughs> but, but then it became, you know, in college I'd done maybe one or two talent shows. And then after the summer of, I think, my sophomore year. <laughs> after that, I can't. It's always something. I mean, how? I should have just fucking kept the room. I mean, I'm sure there are people wondering, why are we talking? But, like, now I've got this weird, acute sensitivity to, you know, like, hold on. You know what I'm going to do? Um, I'm going to monitor our situation. Okay. Yeah, that guy's very loud. Oh. But I, I think but, but I, there's a little... I just put headphones on it in, in Sean's machine to make sure that we're recording okay. Um, do you, have so you, you, can, have so you figured out uh, this business? What do you got this on? 90 or 120? I have no idea. Yeah. Like, there's these things have, you know, that you can either make it a 90 degree range or mm -hmm. 120. See, I'm on episode five. You're on episode 600. So, no, I know. There's a learning curve. Well, what I would do if I were you is um, get two mic cords and plug them in there and handhold it with the XLRs. Okay. But, uh, but this sounds okay. So, <laughs> the thing is, you're getting, like, that is yeah. right fucking there, dude. That's louder than the dishes were. All right, let's go out there. Let's okay. go outside. Just keep it going. Yep. Carry those headphones. We're on the move. You sit across from me. Now, this is nice. Now, now I think we have birds. But, like, you're just, you were just going to get some subtext narrative of, you know, that guy's life. Okay. Who knows? That could be the. That could turn out to be the real story here. Maybe. Oh, you, you, your batteries. You don't have a lot of battery, uh -oh. dude. What are you gonna do? Why are you not on top of this? Hello. Check. Check. All right. See, I'm. I'm from a, an analog world. I, 
No, you're not. I I talk to people and then I transcribe it and then people read it, but people don't read anymore. Okay, well, you know what you got going here. This is uh, this looks about right, but you are gonna run out of batteries. Mm -hmm. Um, we'll see. Keep an eye yeah. on. Okay. Is there a plug out here? Do you have the plug? I lost. I no. actually lost my Zoom plug. You know, you, know, you have that. I don't batteries. have it with me. You don't have extra batteries. Not on me. All right, well, get on with it then, Sean. All right. So, uh, <laughs> so, so Paul Reiser told you, right? Yeah, just and jump then, in. and then, like after I graduated college, or no, like about sophomore year of college, I had done some writing with a dude, and we auditioned for a thing as a team, and. Uh, you know, and, and we tried to, to do comedy together, and then he graduated, and I ended up, uh, I think it was probably the year 84, 85, that summer I did open mics in Boston, drank a lot, and was doing open mics at Played Against Dams and Stitches and a few of the other places, so that, that was where I first understood how the process sort of begins. And what were you doing for work? Well, I mean, I mean, he's doing a summer job. Uh, I think the first year I did comedy, the first summer, and I and I only did it a summer. I was working at a place called Gordon's Deli, out in Puttingham, Putterham Circle in uh, West Roxbury in uh, in Boston. So one of the last of the great Jewish delis of that area, and uh, and I was just drinking a lot and going out and trying to get on stage, waiting around for hours to get on stage at you know club-driven open mics, which was all there were. And after a summer of that, I got was sufficiently beat up and did not really attempt to do comedy again until after I graduated and moved to L.A. after the summer uh, at home. And then in L.A., you got a job at the store. I did. I, I moved in with the guy that I wrote comedy with early, you know, in college. We tried to write a script. I auditioned to the store, and just by coincidence, you know, I was doing PA work, and uh, I got uh, I hired onto a shoot. Um, that was being produced by Mitzi, and she remembered me from my audition and gave me the job as a doorman. And then, like at that time, you know, I was sort of being pushed out of my my housing situation by by Steve, and because Pete Berg wanted to move in, and they were buddies, and Steve Brill, and uh, so I ended up moving into the house that Mitzi owned, that she had boarded comics in up behind the comedy store. So, did your whole life at that point revolve around comedy? Oh yeah, I mean at the you know the period during the comedy store yeah I was there every night I used to go listen to CDs in the OR in the original room during the day I'd use the stereo there I'd go get my coffee there I was driving the jeep for her driving guys to the airport working the door working the back lot trying to even up on the rent you know and doing a lot of blow with Kennison and that crew and that was my entire life was the comedy store I don't know if it was necessarily comedy per se but it was certainly the lifestyle that was afforded me at the comedy store. It certainly quickens your learning curve, though, compared to someone who's working a day job in an office and going on auditions and. Yeah, no, I never really did that. I mean, you know, I worked in restaurants, and then uh, you know, once I got to LA, yeah, I was in at the comedy store, you know, and, and that was it. That was my life. And how did it really pan out? Like. Um, yeah, well, it, cre it was good because like it wasn't that I was getting a shitload of stage time because we could only work in the belly room and occasionally if someone didn't show up we could sneak on stage in the original room. But you were watching everybody, you know. At that time, it was you know Sam, uh, Dice Clay, Damon Wayans. You know, Pryor came in a couple times while I was there. You know, in a very fragile state. Um, who else was around at that time that you, that you would really know? It, it, you know the main room. <laughs> There's some Karen Haber, Jan Hart, you know, like weird you know people that you probably don't know. Kathy Ladman, uh, you know Belzer was around, uh, Shandling occasionally. I mean it was really you know kind of something. You you were immersed in 
in that, in that, in in the watching of comedy. Certainly, Mooney was there, Dave Tyree, Louis Anderson. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, it was crazy. What was the first bit you had that that made you feel like, oh, I can? Well, I, I did that. I think, like, I did that in open mic in Boston. I mean, there was, you know, certain certain things I did. That that old joke that I did. I think there's footage of it from the Rascals Comedy Hour. Um, you know, where you know, if you go out on a date, have a couple of drinks, smoke a cigarette, you know, and have sex without a condom, or or, or you're living on the edge. I, you know, I, there was a couple. I used to get on stage and I'd put the mic stand on top of the stool. I just let it sit there. I'd say like, I recently visited the Museum of Modern Art. You know, you know, there was stuff that, and there was a joke I used to do about like my room. I, you know, my roommates were deadheads in college, and you know, uh, you, you know, my like my roommate would, I can't remember, like it was something about opening the refrigerator and be like, hey, orange juice and cherry. You know, like it was like, you know, kind of pretty simple stuff. What about? Um, did you have any sort of rituals for like a last thing you do before you went on stage? I just freaked out. You know, I just freaked out. You know, just sort of like fuck, fuck, fuck. You know, like pacing and you know, sweating and you know, overthinking and uh, you know, trying to you know, get out there with the right intensity to get that first laugh. Desperately and angrily trying to break through for that first laugh, just like almost hitting them over the head with you know, there's no subtlety to it early on. Just a kind of like frenetic intensity that I needed to get that first laugh. You know. So is that how you used to open? Well, I always had a strong opening joke. Like, that was, like, I always was of that school where, like, I needed to know within seconds. You know, like, for years I did this sort of, uh, got a new self-help book, um, came with a gun. <laughs> you know, it's a pretty simple system. You just, you know, put one bullet in the cylinder, in the chamber, spin it. Good morning, you know. Uh, it's dark. But it, like it took me a while to get that second beat. Like you know, I was doing that joke. I, don't, I believed in the joke, but I used to just put the gun to my head and go, you know. Uh, like I don't remember what I did, but I remember I had to add the click for the timing. It was such a simple thing. The joke wouldn't work without the click. But because uh, people are just waiting for it. No, no, it just it just it was too fast. The beats weren't right. Like it was like the weird sort of hands-on lesson in joke structure. Like there was a beat, need another beat. Wait, what, how does that compare to your rituals now when you go? Well, now, like, I, you know, I sort of, like, try to fill my head up with, like, I bring, I have my pad stuff, and, you know, I don't really look at the pad, but, like, I just kind of, like, get the whole palette of what I'm working on at every given, given point in time, like, into my face and into my head, like, the list, you know, which things kind of go together, you know, where am I going to put them? I like to mix up the chunks in order-wise and maybe do some things I didn't do the night before, whatever, but I generally have a big wild-looking, handwritten uh, legal pad or typing paper written on the back of typing paper, uh, some sort of the back being, you know, on the other side might be a page of a script that I threw away. Um, but just like a big sort of palette of everything I'm sort of working on, you know? And then just get that into my head. Yeah. Maybe we should listen to this guy's conversation. Hello, Archie. Yeah. yeah. That guy's opener is nothing compared to yours. <laughs> do you um, do you still remember your first road gig? Now we're getting a little wind. That's weird. Where's that coming from? I remember some. I remember going. <laughs> 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 
he's doing. Um, uh, I remember being at the comedy store and being taken on a road gig, not knowing what a road gig was. But Johnny Zapp, who now hangs out at the comedy store constantly, he used to book these gigs up in Solvang, you know, which was like the windmill, the Dutch uh, area up in uh, Northern California. Okay. These one-nighters. Yeah, I remember going up there with uh, Mark Godier and. Uh, Maybe Mike Jaselka, and he'd go do these one-nighters, and <laughs> he'd go do these one-nighters, and uh, you know, then he'd party, and they'd do improv after. I remember those. Okay. That was a signature of some 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 bookers would. You do the one-nighter, you do the open middle closer, and then everybody would come back with the guy who booked it, who was probably a failed comic, and do improv games. Hmm. You know, like uh, give us a profession, that kind of shit. Oh yeah. I, yeah. I did that for spell yeah and so I think it was probably around that time where I'd go out and get paid like 50 bucks or whatever to open or you know I remember one of those times I got really sick and all the guys got mad at me that I didn't do blow with them I was like I'm sick dude I got fever and I can't yeah <laughs> they, they're both gonna do it yeah all right. You know, we're in New York City. It's, I know, I should have kept the room. I keep saying that. What else you got? <laughs> uh, what was, um, when you're on a lineup with, with a lot of other comics, whether it's a festival or a showcase, who's the last person or type of person you want to have to follow? I've gotten better at that. You know, Usually, it takes a while to learn that part of the job is, I'm going to fucking kill somebody in a minute. We're very sensitive people. But I mean, I just, I mean, I guess we're doing the same thing, but it seems yeah. to be of a more important situation here. This is for posterity. Yeah, this is a lasting legacy we're cementing. Um, well, I used to get really nervous about following people. I had a very bad experience, like, because you can psych yourself out so hard, you know, that, like, you, you know, like, I remember very early on, I had to follow Dennis Leary at Nick's, and it was like a nightmare. I was doing a guest spot after he did, like, 20 minutes, and well, he's one of those guys that even if he didn't do well, he's going to level the room with that intensity. And, you know, I had to follow Hicks once, but, like, a lot of times it didn't, like, I would psych myself out. You don't want to follow anybody that's really strong, you know, that just sort of, like, you don't want to follow anyone that gets a standing O, you know, you don't want to. But the truth of the matter is, part of doing the job is, like, it might take you five minutes to get them, you know, on, on board. You know what I mean? Yeah. we got to get the fuck out of here again. Okay. Let's move. Oh, no. Yeah. I think we might be better off in the first place. Maybe they've settled all the uh, pots and pans. He just got the hum of ice machines and shit. So, that girl just saw the hate in my eyes. Now I'm just worried about your battery situation. All right, you're all right. We'll be fine. All right, Mr. Optimistic. <laughs> um, so, but eventually you learn, you got to just deal with it. You know, it just take a long time to realize, like, all right, I got to follow that guy. I hated it. I hate following strong acts. But it's just going to, you know, it is what it is. You know, I'm not hard to follow. But, you know, some people are very hard to follow because they, they go by the old school kind of, like, even if you're doing 12 minutes, blow, you know, just blow them out at the end. Which is, I did that too, but I, whatever. Um, is, is, that, is that more problematic than, than having a heckler? 
No, it's not problematic. It's just that, like, you don't know how long it's going to take to get them on your side or whether you are going to get them on your side or whether you just acknowledge that. You know, do you, you know, there's just skill set that involved in that. You know, do I just, you know, go up there and you're going to have to take the hit, you know, without throwing the other guy under the bus, you know, with at least a, a adhering to, oh, my God. <laughs> I can hear it so much louder because I'm wearing the headphones. Right. Um, and you just weren't how to deal with that. I mean, the heckler's whole situation. I mean, hardcore can be fine. I mean, sometimes you're gonna have the best set of your life just by shitting on some idiot. So I mean, I don't, I don't see them comparable. The, the, In terms of the range of noises <laughs> going on right now. Do you hear that? Yeah, I do hear that. What is that? That's the ice machine. Hardcores are not necessarily the end of the world. I mean, it's a management. It's a skill set. If you have it, they can, you know, be a great thing. You know, I don't encourage it. Did that just start that noise? And now I this guy's fucking slamming things back here? I think it's... Oh, uh, the guys are gone in here. Okay. Now no, we have interna I mean, it's, it's, international laughter. It's, it's, all a, it's all a matter of resetting the room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, resetting it or just sort of like, you, you know, realizing that they're there to see a night of comedy. You're the next comic. Just do it. You know, if it sucks for the first five minutes or you don't do as well as the guy, because you can sabotage your whole set or you might not get them. But for a 12-minute set, you know. Yeah. Where's that? That's back there. That's that guy? Yeah. It's the same guys. They just moved over there. But, the, but one guy's cleaning plants and the other guy's just talking while he cleans plants. Well, I, re um, I remember seeing Mitch Hedberg. He would destroy a room for a half hour and then self-sabotage sometimes. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, but when you're touring and, you know, when I bring someone on the road with me or I have someone open for me, I'm not going to, you know, put, you know, I like having strong comics and I know they're there to see me, but, you know, you don't want to, you know, make it hard for yourself. But there's a certain karma that comes back around too. Like, I, you know, if I didn't middle for very long, but if you're a strong middle, like it, sometimes when you do headlining in clubs, you know, you're going to take a hit. Maybe one out of the six shows, the middle, if he's good, is going to put it up your ass. And you're not going to have as good a set as the middle. And that happens. And there's karma to that, you know what I mean? Like I was a middle that went out of my way to make it difficult for a couple of headliners. And I don't think it ever, you know, you, you know, it come, what goes around comes around. But it's just part of the job, that part. You know, there's nothing you can do about it. Part of the job is you might not do as good as you want. What are you going to do? As a headliner, what do you look for in a, in a middle? I usually just go with an opener if I go with anybody. You know, I like p bringing people that I like to watch, usually. Like, I've had, uh, you know, Ryan Singer open, me, open for me for a long time. Mike, Mike Lawrence did a lot of gigs with me. Nate Bargetzi, who I love, did a lot of gigs with me. But they get big on their own right. And, you know, and sometimes I get local guys, you know, who are pretty strong. But I like being around somebody that I like being around and watching and you actually like watching them instead of... Oh, yeah, I can watch Nate over and over again. Instead of just being in the green room and... Being, I don't... No, I, I mean, I'm br I brought them. Ashley Barnhill with me this tour because, like, she worked for me in another... You know, she was, like, sort of working for me, and now she's sort of getting some heat as a comic. Great, you can hear the cleaning of the leaves. It's very sensitive. I didn't really, and I have the same machine. I didn't realize how sensitive it was. But, um, but she's doing good, you know, but we don't necessarily hang out. And, you know, mm -hmm. I don't necessarily... You know, watch her, but but I wanted to give her the opportunity and to, you know what I mean. <laughs> but she's doing a great job. What are you now? You're hung up with the plants. Now this guy's talking. Do you, do you huh? ever do you ever think about what you might be doing if you weren't doing comedy? Cleaning would, plants. Would you be cleaning? No, I can't think about that. I don't know what I would be doing. It wouldn't be good. It would be sad. 
I don't I don't no longer think about that. I mean, it kind of helps that you do have a second career as an interviewer, a talk show. No, but I mean, it, it's all the same thing to me. So, like, if I wasn't doing what I do, I don't know what I'd be doing. Yeah. What's the What's the last? Uh, Just trying to see how how loud it is actually in the room. It's noticeable. You what's, should hear it on your fucking. Why do you hear it? Go ahead. What's the last? What's the last great bit of advice you got from another comedian? Um. I don't know. Listen to the podcast. <laughs> uh, is that what you tell uh, young comics when they ask you for advice? What's, no. What's, what's the, the question? What's the first thing you tell someone who's about like, what? What's specific? Be more specific. Can you give me any advice to that question? My answer to a young comic is: Don't pigeonhole yourself. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Don't think that you know stand up uh, alone is the the only career there is because that's a hard life. It might not work out if you have a skill for humor and writing jokes. Uh, you know, I would you know, I, I would be I would figure out a way to use that skill that you know is not exclusively stand-up that maybe you could make a living with. Don't be afraid to work with other people. Write something. Don't be afraid to write for other people. You know, if you're going to choose to live the life of exclusively a stand-up, uh, good luck. So a lot of heartbreak, and it might not work out if you really look at the success rate and depending on what kind of success you want. My, my advice is generally if you have the skill of writing humor and jokes and stuff, make sure you explore all the different avenues of what you can do with that in terms of actually making a living. Seems like you do have the answer. To that one. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not an answer. It's just like, you know, I never chose anything else and I wouldn't want to. I was never interested in writing for other people or writing for television or any of that. And, you know, it worked out for me, barely. I mean, it turned around. I mean, right. I'm, I'm grateful and happy to be where I am, but there's a lot of, a lot of brutal years, a lot of, you know, scary times and I look around to the guys I know that you know that that made that commitment as well and you know sometimes it didn't work out it's just you know just understand your talent is really what I'm saying like you know understand what it is and you know what your limitations are and and figure out a way how to nurture your talent uh, that you're happy with that provokes your creativity but also that can sustain you a little bit and earn you some money Stand-up is that's, not like, it's not like, you know, that's a good job choice. Do you know what I mean? That's not why anyone goes into stand-up. Not no. in my mind. They shouldn't. You know, like, it's not, I never ever thought of that. But it's not sort of like, I'm, th I'm wondering what I'm going to do for a living. I think stand-up's a good, good choice. Yeah. You know, anyone who thinks that is, is a fucking idiot or completely delusional or might be the luckiest guy in the world. I picked newspaper reporter. Yeah, that's good timing for that. <laughs> And that was last year, right? <laughs> you know, and now I'm a comedy journalist. So what's, you know, mm -hmm. the choices we make sometimes are... Yeah, they're not based on any sort of logic in mind. No. You know, but there are responsibility. There's responsible people who really put some thought and some insight, you know, foresight into like the choices they're making for their career. And they pursue a very specific trajectory. I was just sort of like, I just want to get up there, kind of. Do you... <laughs> It's, it's, it's very timeless, and yet this comedy boom we're in is so different from the one of the 80s. 
just well, it's not club specific. Well, be, because going back to the technology issue, it's technology has made it so much easier. It's opened the doors for everybody to, to take a shot, to take a shot at, and it. also and, uh, uh, along with taking that shot, to think that they're doing it. <laughs> no, it's out there, man. Yeah, it's, yeah it might be all that all that it is. It's just out there. All it takes is that one hit podcast, that one hit YouTube video, that to what that tweet does it. To, that's going to change the world. The tweet that started the end. <laughs> That's easy. To do. That is actually more possible than it being going the good way. The tweet that goes the bad way and destroys you. Well, that's why I, that's why I asked you at the beginning about taking a break. It seems like that's the... I'm not doing it as much as I used to. I don't know if you're on top of my Twitter feed. I'm really not. I'm, I'm sadly doing more promotional tweets than, you know, fun ones, which is bad. But it, it, it almost seems like it's the hot trend in 2015 to, to quit your Twitter... I don't know if that's true. I mean, to, if you're going to be announcing that shit, stupid. Like I'm, I'm, go, I'm pulling out. You know, do a patent. I'm nobly removing myself from the social platform cultural dialogue to see if I still know how to read and watch films I enjoy. Mm. Uh, thanks for the announcement, Your Highness. See, you still can make fake, fake real feuds. <laughs> sure, I can. He knows. Uh, he knows. He knows. <laughs> he knows what we are. Uh, is there anything you have for me? In what way? I don't know. You seem to do like you're doing all right. You're doing all right. I'm trying to figure out the next thing, just like everybody else. Is this part of the next thing? Am I part yeah. of the next thing? I keep looking at your battery. This is part of the next thing. Yeah, I mean, look. You know, I'm happy. I, I'm I'm happy to be, and grateful. I add that to make sure I feel it. You know, I, you know, I'm doing the, the third season of my TV show. These, everything that's happening for me now, I, I really had given up on happening. So, you know, it's a tremendous uh, gift. Uh, you know, and, it's not, and, I think, and I feel like, uh, you know, thank God I'm, like, I'm ready for what's happening. I can handle it. You know, I couldn't have handled it at any other time. So things really do happen when and how they're supposed to happen. Well, I think you have to look at it that way. <laughs> it's the only way to maintain our sanity and I, serenity. I and, think so. Yeah. I, I, I don't know that there's empirical evidence of that, but I mean, from your perspective and your perception, it's helpful to look at it that way. <laughs> uh, well, I'm glad we had this chat. Yeah, me too, buddy. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening.